HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. This week on Meet and 3, meet four of our HRN Hall of Fame inductees. These prolific individuals are writers who have changed the way we talk about food. We'll take a look at the journeys that shaped their literary voices. I was heading off into the unknown to spend my junior year of college in Paris. We'll explore the culinary landscape they work within. You know, it was that whole self-made American idea that you, you can just kind of create a new world from scratch, including a new way of eating. And look at the transformative effect that their work has on what we eat and where it comes from. It gets down to management deciding that humane handling is important. You've got to have management that cares. And if management doesn't care, then you're going to have a bunch of bad stuff. You can learn more about HRN's 10th Anniversary Hall of Fame at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Sabado Segoria. We'll talk to Sabado about wine, bar taco, being a master psalm, and a lot more. Let's have a little fun with this guy. Um, we'll taste the Bourguignon Blanc that Sabado brought in for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Sabado Cigaria got his engine started at Cornell, the Greenbrier Hotel, and the Inn at Little Washington. The pace picked up at the Little Nell, Union Square Hospitality, where he rose to the first ever chief restaurant officer, and during the way, became a member of the Court of the Master Sommeliers. Sabado left Union Square Hospitality, I think it was in 2017, and he is now the president of Bar Taco. Welcome to the Grape Nation. Great to be here, Sam. Did we get that right? You nailed it. Nailed it. All right. All right. So you've had a 
you've had a great past, and I think you're going to have a great future. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're going in the right direction. But I do want you to tell people um, about your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which is Bar Taco. Sure. Um, it's a long and, and windy road, but it's been an amazing journey. Don't uh, Greco it. <laughs> I won't Greco it. Um, so it started out when I was two years old. I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> um, I actually was uh, enrolled at Cornell, and there's a statute in the New York State law that says you can consume wine for educational purposes if you're enrolled in the hospitality school. So I was always young for my age, so at the age of 19, I took the wines course, and I did a lot of extracurricular studying over the coming years. Um, and I was then able to be a TA, and I'd get paid five fifty an hour, and uh, every Wednesday I get to bring home two bottles of wine, and that would last till like Friday. So <laughs> that's when I first realized I could get paid to drink wine, and uh, enjoyed learning about it. And um, kind of that's when I got bit by the bug. So uh, out of school, I wanted to learn. I knew I wanted to go into, ho- into restaurants and uh, hotels specifically. Um, so. I went to the Greenbrier in West Virginia and spent six years there cooking in the kitchen. It's a legendary place, right? Yeah, it's been around for 225 yeah. years. Um, and uh, so I rose to the ranks and um, was thinking about leaving. And then the food and beverage director said, well, what if we gave you the keys to the wine cellar and you're the wine director? And I said, well, I have a lot to learn. Um, I haven't traveled much. Like, well, what if we helped you travel? And I was like, okay. So um, I figured it was a safe place for me to take a big step um, in an environment that people would help support me along the way. So um, it was an amazing uh, opportunity there. And after six years in West Virginia, um, I said, okay, um, what else out there? Went to Four Seasons for a bit down in Florida and then got lured back to West Virginia. Um, to open up a, a almost like a resort within a resort at the Green Bar called the Green Bar Sporting Club. Did that for about two years, and uh, that's when I passed my advanced exam. And I said, you know what, I'd like to uh, really get back into wine. And uh, I went to the Inn of Little Washington, so I outgrew West Virginia and went to Virginia right over the hills in a, a tiny little town that had 111 people, I think was the population. There might have been a pregnant lady when I left, so <laughs> I think not because of me, but um, that there might be uh, the population may have increased since then. But was able to be the wine director there, and that's when I really got to start tasting some amazing wines. Um, every night um, when Patrick would sit down for dinner at the end of the night, he'd say, let's pop a bottle. And he loved Burgundy, and so uh, my limit was $300 a bottle, and so I got to drink my way through um, Burgundy, um, and was amazing learning experience. Um, was that your major exposure to burgundy the first real yeah and across the board and i think everybody gets that and then gets obsessed with it and so my goal at the time was how do i get every single grand crew in burgundy represented on the list and that was my way of also studying for it at the same time um but also getting to to taste them um which so that was really really great um was that a better wine program yeah. than the Greenbrier? It was much more depth. It was a, it was a grand award-winning program. Okay. Uh, the Greenbrier had a great program, but it was a much bigger hotel um, and not quite as much depth to it. So right. that was really eye-opening experience there. And then one morning I woke up and I said, I just spent, what, 10 years in the in the two Virginias? I got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Yeah. So that's when Aspen came calling. And um, uh at one point, I was like, wait, am I only living in places like John Denver sings about? You know, Rocky Mountain High and then Almost Heaven. Um, but I uh, went out to Aspen, and um, I wanted to, to a place that I was kind of burnt out on wine, actually. Um, and so I went out as food and beverage director. 
but I wanted to go to a place that I could still be involved in wine. And at that time, Richard Betts was the wine director. Um, Ryan Hardy was the, uh, was the executive chef and, um, we got to really do some awesome things. And that's when I, uh, I started to, you know, I met Jay Fletcher and he said, you know what? I was looking looking in your file, and I, I see that you passed the advance on the first time. You should get back in this. Who is Jay Fletcher? So Jay, um, he currently works for Southern, but he's like the Yoda of blind tasting. So he he and Fred Dame are buddies from way back when, uh, and every master that's come through Colorado has tasted in Jay's kitchen, um, at his kitchen table. And he's someone that really helped mentor me along the way and, and got me back into it um, and helped me understand what community was about because... When I was in West Virginia, there was no wine community. Uh, it was a community of like two, me and you know, uh, one or two other folks. And then uh, at the Inlet of Washington, we were very remote, so there wasn't really a wine community there as well. So it was really neat to be a part of that. And in the six years I was there, five people went on to pass the MS, and it was like a CrossFit for Psalms. And so we'd all be training, but we also, just like when you're skiing or, or snowboarding or biking in Aspen, doing that with people that are better than you pushes you even farther than you knew you could go on your own. And so that was the same approach to studying for wine. Sure. And that's what I attribute to, to me passing while I was there. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was that was Aspen. Did and you ski? I snowboard. You did mm-hmm. snowboard. Okay. So you took advantage. Yeah, I was, of course. Okay. My, my office was the base of Aspen Mountain. I had my snowboard in my office. Unbelievable. Yeah. Didn't, never joined a gym while I was out there. there yeah. Um, All right. So you eventually leave Little Nell. Yeah. So uh, Aspen's an amazing place, but it's also Never Never Land where it's like, oh, I don't have to grow up. This is amazing. I have this, you know, 300 days of sunshine. I've got this amazing mountain in my backyard. Um, but I knew there really wasn't that much more opportunity to grow. And um, over the years, I had a, a chance to um, meet a lot of great folks through the Aspen Food Wine Classic, which was um, basically the epicenter. It was at, at the Little Nell. And uh, I got to meet Danny Meyer um, uh, over the years and was actually at Pebble Beach Food and Wine. I'm at this crossroads trying to figure out what I want to do next. Uh, and ran into Danny one morning and said, let's grab coffee. And uh, so um, grabbed a coffee and he said, I'm creating this position. I think it'd be great for you. Would you be interested? And was like, okay, never really thought about New York. Um, you know, I guess I had only worked at the Little Wash, in the Little Washington, the Little Nell, so little places, and now the Big Apple came and calling. where'd you grow up, Ohio? Columbus, Ohio, yeah. All right. So Good bef- town. Yeah, but before I moved <clears throat> to New York, let's see. Aspen was actually the biggest town I lived in post college. Really? So that's crazy. Yeah. So th- that gives you a background of where wow. how small these little uh, <coughs> these towns were. So um, after chatting with Danny and the team, um, I came to New York and uh, joined as the first uh, chief restaurant officer they had. And so a really amazing opportunity with eight restaurants at the time. And so helping grow the company um, to you know to seventeen concepts when when I left and working with some amazing talent, people that I'd looked up to over the years, um, that I now consider friends and peers and, and learned so much and hopefully I contributed as well um, to their growth. So did that for four four amazing years and then was presented with an opportunity to, you know, I'd grown restaurants within New York, but I hadn't really gone outside of New York and and seventeen different concepts was a lot. Um, so being able to focus on one concept, uh, was exciting for me. And, um, there was an opportunity with this company based out of Connecticut. Um, so I still live in New York, uh, and, um, started in 2010. I think they had 12 restaurants at the time and, uh, was able to take over for some of the founders and became president. And, um, that was about a little under two years ago, about a year and a half, maybe. Uh, and since then, um, it's been a wild ride. Uh, opened eight restaurants in the past 13 months, and 
Uh, we got acquired by a publicly traded company, so leading a team through an integration there, going through another potential sale right now. So it's just uh, a lot of learning and also allowed me to get her outside of New York and I kind of saw the bubble that New York was, but actually seeing how many amazing um, communities there are out there, people that want great food and wine and uh, um, getting to meet those folks and, and you know, eat in their restaurants and, and also introduce them to, to new flavors as well. So that's, uh, that's my, my journey. All right. Um, just fill in a couple of gaps for mm -hmm. me. So that, that moment that you knew you were hooked on wine, was mm -hmm. it Cornell or was it tasting wines at, uh, like, I could stay with this and be in this? No, I, think it was, I think it was Cornell because actually our, our textbook was Kevin Zarelli's Windows in the World Wine Book. And so seeing that and meeting the people that would come talk to our class, it was, you got to study history, you got to, you know, taste wine. And, um, it was a, a subject that was very intimidating if you didn't know anything, but as what I loved were the people that could actually teach it to us in a way that made it so approachable and being able to demystify something. Um, and that's what I was drawn to. And both my parents are professors. And so I was also drawn to the, being able to study that. And then also at the Greenbrier starting to, to teach folks about it um, as well. That was really, really awesome. And the other thing was why and what compelled you to become an MS? I mean, that's, that's a big effing deal. Yeah. You know, I mean, if people are casually interested, they've seen the movies yeah. or TV and they know what it takes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you knew you'd have to jump into that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, why, what, why did you do it? What do you think it would do for you? Did it fill in your curiosities? Yeah. So when I started and when I, when I started the journey, um, and when I passed it was two different things I was trying to get out of it. Um, <laughs> when I when I started, um, it was just wanting to have some structure to, and, and you know, being in these small communities, didn't really know where my knowledge was, and I liked, you know, played golf in, in college, and uh, uh, just liked being competitive. So how was I, my level, prepared compared to other folks out there in the industry? And being in West Virginia and Virginia, you don't really have many people you can compare it to. So it was a great chance for me to see how my knowledge was prog progressing, but also have a goal to, to work forward, just like you're training for something. Um, but when I left the inn, in all honesty, um, I actually was burnt out on wine. Um, I was burnt out in the restaurant industry, and I, was, I applied to business school, um, five different schools, all out of my league, and I hadn't taken standardized tests in I don't know how many years. Um, fortunately, I didn't get into any of the business schools. That's why you never... Yeah, the work got into that yeah. path. Um, and is that I'm, unfortunately I didn't because fortuitous? I mean, is that yeah. a good thing? Because 08, I would have graduated in 08 when the market was crashing, and Oof. I would have been right back into the restaurant business. I would have missed out on those two years. So um, I went to Aspen, and um, when I got there, I wasn't involved in wine on the day to day, um, was involved in kind of the shape of, of the program and, and events that we did. Um, but it was really the camaraderie uh, that I had, that I made along the way and the, the friendship. And it was um, also almost in a way like, okay, I've gone this far. Why, I, why not give it a try? And once I got into that, it was that competitive nature again. That, that, that kept the drive. Yeah, that, that, yeah, no the, regrets. Like the athleticism. and This is more than I wanted, maybe. Um, I mean, it definitely was. And but I, it, yeah. not enough to obviously back out. No, um, I, you know, had a some tumultuous relationships as a result of wine. And I probably have some ex-girlfriends that don't drink wine because of every time I took the test, I was so... It, it's impossible to function yeah, to do that, you're right? You're so maniacal. And, and my mindset was like, I would hate to come up one hour short 
of not passing. Right, right. You know. Right. Well, listen, it's something uh, that you'll always mm-hmm. have, and I don't think you'd want to do it now, you know. I, I definitely wouldn't, but the friends that I made along the way yeah. um, are some of the closest I have, and I learned so much about myself in that, that journey as well. So You, you have to, mm-hmm. and it's an elite club, but the nice thing about it is there's some great people in there. Not just talented mm-hmm. wine people, but just good souls yeah. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a curiosity. I mean, you, you know, out of the gate, you worked at places with heightened hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these weren't ordinary places and all that. And then you get to Union Square uh, Hospitality Group, and Danny and the group's known for you know a level. Um, were they the innovator? Um, were they the popularizer? Um, you know, because Danny wrote a book at it. When people talk about hospitality in a certain style, it always goes back to mm-hmm. him. Is he getting too much credit? Or no, I, I don't. I don't think he's um, uh, getting too much credit. I remember when I first read the book before I ever met him, and I like couldn't put the book down. And I was like, "This is amazing." It was actually uh, a trip to Italy. I was on the plane over. And it was actually the day after I shaved my head for the very first time. Okay. One of five bald master <laughs> exactly, sommeliers. Yes, exactly. Talk yeah. about that later. Um, uh, so it was a very in- influential time in my life. <laughs> uh, and um, I think it was all there, but it was something, it was like um, umami in the sense that nobody knew, everybody knew that there was something out there, this, the, you know, the, the sixth uh, uh, flavor. Um, and never knew that hospitality was something about it, but never really uh, realized the importance of it or could name it. And I think um, what Danny did was able to show how hospitality is something that uh, is just a way of life um, and put the value on that. And when you look at life through that lens of hospitality, um, what it can unlock for you in allowing people to be their best and to appreciate their surroundings right. um, with it. So. Right. So... Definitely, at least an mm-hmm. assist, definitely credit mm-hmm. and all that, yeah. and definitely influenced a lot of people. Um, you're a pretty prolific restaurant guy, but let's talk a little about wine. I love it, too. Because you've restaurants, mm-hmm. wine, restaurants, and wine, and all of that stuff. Um, what changes have you seen during the course, you know, say the last 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, in wine? Because you've really, you've held every position that touches mm-hmm. wine. And I said you're a prolific mm-hmm. restaurant guy, but, you know, focus on the wine thing. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, even, you know, the where people are going. I think um, we're so fortunate in the U.S. to have access to wines from all over the world. And I don't think many people realize that. And you travel and you're in France and you're in a region, you know, you're in Burgundy, you're not drinking Bordeaux. There's not Bordeaux on the list to that extent, let alone California wine. Is that like a territorial thing or an import thing or a little of everything? I just think it's like that's that's the world that people live in. And when right. you think wine was made to be consumed with the people around you, it wasn't to say, how many markets around the world can I distribute to? You know, that, that wasn't the mindset of it. Just like people weren't saying, I'm going to open a restaurant. I want to have a restaurant kingdom. You know, that, that wasn't the mindset at the time. And... Uh, so when so you, that point's well taken, and will you agree with me that there's sort of an explosion? I mean, whether it's Croatia or absolutely. natural wines, whatever. Yeah, yeah. and um, so I'd say over the, those years, you know, I remember when it was just California wines, and even California wines have changed the style, but um, there's a lot of... Changed uh, the style to what? Restraint? I think there's more restraint in okay. those wines, and also... Um, 
the shifting of the influence of critics. And you got to think of Parker being at the all-time peak of uh, the power, most powerful critic uh, of anything on the planet. Um, so stay with that. Yeah. Um, you know, they talk about the Parkerization of mm-hmm. wine. He launched his career mm-hmm. in the 82, mm-hmm. Bordeaux and all of that. Um, your point is he was sort of the only game in town or the loudest voice or the best voice or all of the above. He was in the right place at the right time right. with a great voice and access. And and it's, you know, you can argue with whether what he did to it was good or evil, you know, in that sense. But right. at the end of the day, um, it helped through his megaphone, he told people, hey, there's wine and there's amazing wine out there. Give him that. And even people that were critical of him yeah. said he brought people to exactly. the table. And maybe you maybe you grew up drinking California wines and he said, oh, this is an amazing 100-point wine from Bordeaux. And you taste that and like, oh, wow, this is a Bordeaux that's my style. Um, and so I think you start to see people step outside of that. And you also start to see wine coming and understanding the style of wine they had, being a little more experimental. You had people in restaurants, you know, actually sommeliers that they could talk to. And it really helped people um, one foot in a comfort zone, one foot out. And that's when the wine journey began for a lot of folks. Um, but you were also alluding to something else. Like Parker was that voice. There's been, and I love to use this word, a democratization of wine reviews, critics, people. And I think a lot of that is social media and the Internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, has that played a major effect in the change? Tell me, you know, how in your mind. Absolutely has. I mean, you can um, you can scroll through uh, an Instagram feed and you'll see, you know, the same bottles popping up. And it's just like in restaurants, you know, there was a time when I remember when I was looking for inspiration, be on the Internet, Googling restaurants and looking at menus. Now, and then you say, okay, I have to go there and I have to see what that's all about. Now, within, you know, two minutes, I can have just kind of gone through the entire world of restaurants to see what dishes are trending, which was at the most likes, what's resonating. And then chefs can try and recreate that. It oftentimes goes awry on the food side, but from the wine side, it's still the same wine in the bottle that they're drinking in California as they are here. And, you know, if I was in West Virginia and I had access to that, I had no idea what the producers that people were drinking on the, the left and the right coast. Right. And so it was so only the, what was available in my market or what I could read about. The discovery is amazing and the immediacy of the yeah. medium. You it, know, you think just, about like you're looking at a, a, a target and your margin for error by being able to just narrow in a little bit is much smaller and you can be more pinpoint accuracy with, oh, I'm going to try this. Chance starts can be great rather than a wild, you know, crapshoot. Right. Um, you know, I asked you about wine. What about sommeliers, which is a part of wine? I mean, I'll throw the first ball out. I mean, I think there's a new wave of guys out there. It's younger. Where and is, gals. And gals. And gals. Mm-hmm. I, believe me, I'm mm-hmm. a huge. Yeah. June is Women and Wine mm-hmm. Month. You know, we talk to... I sound like Trump now, justifying <laughs> what I know no, is no, right. No. You know, <laughs> and gals, my mistake. Um, but w- w- what is what has changed? I mean, that that's one point. But um, you know, are the older guys getting out? Are people? Is it less snooty? Is it more snooty? You know, what, what's the feel there? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time. Um, you know, I think I think uh, psalms are like. Um, boy bands and gymnasts and ice dancers like you can't do it forever right right i was gonna say tell us why yeah exactly. there's a window forever. yeah there's a window in that you're actually but, but give me the one two or three reasons why you can't yeah. do it forever well i think there's uh, there's a number the monotony of you you always, you know you're driven um and you want to do amazing things 
there's only so much you can do within the four walls of a restaurant and one wine list. And there's people that have done that for an entire career, and that's I applaud that, and that's amazing. But also, um, there's people that want to say, what else can I do out there? And so there's a time when now you can be making wine. Now you could, you know, you know own a retail shop. There's so many other avenues that you can do with that wine talent. Whereas at one point, when I was starting, you either you either sold wine in a restaurant or you sold it uh, to restaurants. Those were the only two real avenues for a sommelier. Um, back so then. people, psalms get antsy. Yeah, you know, there's a little monotony, yeah. like you said. After a while, mm. like four walls, same wine, right. customers, food, chefs, the same way. Yeah, and you're on your feet. How long? You know, how long can you do that um, to to sustain that? Um, so I think that's one thing. When you also look at um, restaurants <laughs> today, they're even more challenging than ever, um, and. Now there's a lot of restaurants that have wine directors and psalms, um, whereas back in the day it was only the restaurants that had the real big programs that could afford that and that would invest in that. And so there were almost like these, you can, you know, it'd be interesting to do a family tree of where all the, you know, great psalms have come from and the branches that those restaurants have put out into the industry. And um, now you have all these little uh, saplings kind of coming up. Um, but there's maybe not as much when you have those small programs, you're training, you don't necessarily have a wine team. So maybe within those four walls, it's uh, harder to build that, that wine culture, right. um, or have, uh, uh, peers to, to bounce things off of. Right. <laughs> we were talking about Kevin's Rayleigh earlier, mm-hmm. you know, when he was a Psalm at uh, windows on the world, he said there were seven Psalms mm-hmm. in New York. He goes, you walk into 11 Madison and there's seven on the mm-hmm. floor. <laughs> You know, it's just, exactly. it's crazy, you know, yeah. the, the way things have changed. Um, while I have you in the seat, tell me about some wines or regions or varietals that are exciting you or you're mm-hmm. trying. It's one of our questions in the wine list in okay. a way, but yeah. on a broader thing. I do, drink- you, do you do that or you're just like, you're, I'm drinking Burgundy, see you later? Well, there's, I guess there's two. Two different approaches that I take to that. One is uh, because I don't sell wine and I'm not around on a day, in, day out basis. Right. Um, when I am popping a bottle, I'm looking for more of a sure thing rather than a gamble. Um, whereas in the old days, but great, pop this. Okay, I'll pull steak, something. Steak, cigar, yeah. and wine. You don't want to <laughs> eat a bad right, steak, right, right. smoke a bad cigar, drink a bad scotch. Exactly. Have a, right. Yeah. So there's there's that approach, and so I, I know what I do like. Um, so those are my my go tos, but. I also like, um, I drink seasonally, and with that, that allows me to try new things, like we're going to try today. Um, and, uh, you know, during the summer, I love to chill down reds, and so drinking a lot of wines from Sicily, a lot of um, uh, Beaujolais, uh, those style wines for, for reds. So Beaujolais, you could say, is not lighter, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's got a good summer. Mm-hmm. It's good everything, yeah. but it's good for summer. Mm-hmm. Does Sicily offer that, or is it a little heavier, or it's still you could you know crunch it down, crush it? Well, I think it's it's a, a little. There's some similarities there, um, especially when you're looking at uh, wines like uh, Frappato, Cherosuolo, you know things like those, that. Um, those sort of right. wines. Then you can go up into you know up into Etna, and then you get more the you know the the volcanic soils. Right. And those are more more meaty, but those uh, those more coastal light. Uh, Fruit-driven, fruit-forward wines um, are the ones that I'm drawn to during the winter time or summertime. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do you lean seasonally towards whites in general towards mm-hmm. whites, or you're a red? I uh, I don't discriminate. Um, okay. But there are times when I'm like, you know, it's hot out. I just want a nice, nice Chablis. Um, 
And during the summertime, I've drank through all my kind of weeknight whites, I guess, uh, this summer. So I have to, to ante up. But I've also started getting ready for the fall with uh, some of the, the new Barberas and Dolcettas mm. um, that are hitting the market from 16. And stuff. So Piedmont over Tuscany? Uh, I've actually fallen back in love with Tuscany and drinking a lot more Sangiovese. It was like... So you were? I was, and then I went Now to, you're... Now I'm coming okay. back, and uh, I think there was a time when Brunello was, you know, Super Tuscan's Brunello's, and that's what everybody was talking about. Uh, and I didn't drink those for a long time. Now I'm coming back, and I'm actually finding some great values in give me, aged. Give me some examples. Sure. Uh, whether makers or grapes. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you know Sangiovese, uh, whether it be, um, uh, you know, on the Brunello side... Found some great examples of recently of older Licini, Talenti from great vintages in the 90s or um, early 2000s. And uh, so while it may not be a weeknight wine, it's a Friday, Saturday night. Let's pop it and, right. and, and have but a But a Licini was never an extraordinarily priced wine. No. So it doesn't pass along as it ages price-wise. Right, exactly. And so that's where you, can, you just have to, to find those values. So are you mm-hmm. saying more aged I do like wine. wine. I do like wines that have some age on I also right. am drinking some younger Tuscan wines. Um, I think the quality of Rosso del Montalcino has really improved lately. Me too. Um, what about Vino Nobili de Montepulciano? Um, those as well. Uh, they're they're not as readily available on the shelves, um, but is that part of it? It you is. Just don't see I, it I around. Think, I think so, and you know, because it seems to drink well. It does. You know, drink if you well. like Tuscan style yeah. wines, yeah. And I think also up in Piedmont, um, you know, most of the great Barolo producers also produce a Lange Rosso. They'll produce right. a, uh, a Dolcetto, a Barbera. And so that's where I go. Whether I'm drinking Burgundy, I'm drinking Bourgogne Blancs or Bourgogne Rouge from great producers and doing the same thing when it comes to that's, Piedmont. That's what I've been doing. You know, I'm not going to spend a ton of money. I'm done spending money on Cali Trophy wine, which got me into it. You know, I have every vertical. But now with everything mm-hmm. else, you can go into Piedmont mm-hmm. and eat, like you said, the Rossos in yeah. Tuscany, you could drink good stuff. All right, Sabato, we're going to take a quick break because we have to. When we come back, I want you to talk to me about Bartaco and what's going on and what you're doing and where it's going. I want to subject you to our wine list. And I want to leave a little time and not rush into tasting because you brought a bottle in that you never had. And I'm more curious, like I said, about the process of what you think and your evaluations and all that. We're talking to Sabado Sigoria, Sigaria, Sigaria. I got it right. Um, From Bar Taco. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late nights seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and, above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com.
All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Sabado Sagaria. Sabado is a master sommelier. Sabado is the president of Bar Taco. And Sabado, I want to talk to you about Bar Taco. It's an interesting play. I think some people obviously have been there and know about it. And I think the exciting thing is there are a lot of people that don't. Yeah. And that's the upside. So tell me about Bar Taco. You know, tell me what it is, the concept. Let's talk about where it's going, what you're doing. Yeah, so the, uh, the first Bar Taco was started in 2010 in Port Chester, New York. So and, it's young. And I hadn't, um, to tell you the truth, before I, the year I started working, I had never been to one. And I had heard people talking about it. And, uh, and I went to see for myself. And I walked in to Port Chester. And it's right on the water. Um, and it was like, wow, this is like I'm transported. And I'd always worked at resorts because it was a place that people would leave the real world behind and focus on connecting and um, being around others and just treating themselves. So walked in, sat down at the bar, ordered a margarita. The bartender took two limes, put them in the hand juicer and, you know, the old Richard press and pressed them out, made me a margarita. I was like, wow, this is, this is different. Um, it's a full service uh, concept. Um, there's no TVs in there. And so it is really about disconnecting from the outside world and connecting with those that you're with. So that TV thing's intentional. Exactly, yeah. Even um, if it's like the World Series? Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's the Super Bowl, we close. Okay. We close on the Super Bowl because... You're better off yeah, being closed exactly. than not having a TV. Exactly. Right. So, um, and the food is not Tex-Mex, it's not Mexican, it's inspired by coastal cuisines from around the world. So whether it's Southern California, parts of Mexico, um, but there's also flavors from Peru, Uruguay, um, Brazil, um, Asia. And so it gives us, um, the tortilla is the canvas and it gives us, uh, we're not bound by a culture, which is really exciting when it comes to introducing people to new flavors. Um, so let's talk about w how you complement that food with a beverage program. Um, I know this is a wine show and yeah. you're a master sommelier, but wine is a portion mm -hmm. of it. But like you said, it's really about, you know, tequila and yeah. beer and all of that. So what are what can people drink there? So the way I look at it is I now get paid to drink tequila and I drink wine for fun, whereas it used to be okay. the other way around uh, when I was in the wine side of things. Um, but, uh, you know, of our all of our um, beverages that we sell, the margarita makes up 80 percent of all of our liquor. It does. Sales. Yeah. So Jesus. People come in. It and even trumps beer by that much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we smell, spell, or sell maybe five percent beer, five percent um, wine, and then um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of liquor and a lot of margaritas. And so, it's how do we really focus in and make sure that's a really great margarita um, every single time? So that's been fun. And taking my wine background to it, it's um, just like the studying and the learning. And now that we have twenty-two restaurants around the country. Um, how to scale that knowledge and that teaching, which has been fun. So I just got to take um, eight of our chefs and managers down to Mexico, and we took them to Jalisco to visit some tequila um, distillers, took them to Oaxaca to see, you know, the donkeys running around and the chickens as they're, you know, making the mezcal, and then a taco crawl through Mexico City. And seeing the eyes open on these uh, team members was, it reinvigorated that fire that I had when I first was, teaching and learning about wine and it's like I haven't done this in, in so long and it was I'd never been either so it was really exciting we're gonna be launching an, an agave academy as a resort, result of that and so seeing the team get excited about it now it's saying I don't want to stay with these 10 people how do we make sure that they can spread this to all 2,500 people that it's are good on our team, team building yeah 
You know, that's the way to do it. You said one word in there, and I don't think people differentiate or always know. You said mezcal. Now, mezcal is not tequila. Tequila is not mezcal. Do two things for me. Quickly tell me the difference. And is mezcal making a play in a place like mm-hmm. Bar Taco, or mm-hmm. you stay with the standard of tequila? Sure. So um, tequila, mezcal, 101. Um, they're both made with agave, uh, but different types of agave. Um, they come from different uh, regions. Um, and the, the key point would be like if you're having, let's say, a whiskey and a scotch whiskey. The scotch is much smokier and peatier. Like Ela versus Speyside. Exactly. Or even just like uh, I'm going to have a, a Johnny Walker Black versus a, you know, a Lagavulin. Lagavulin. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, so when you're looking at um, tequila is much smoother, cleaner. Uh, when you look at mezcal, um, they actually smoke the piñas. So they, they roast them um, before they press them. And as a result, they take on that smoky characteristic to it. And what I was blown away by when I was there is you're walking through these fields and there's wild agave. And these aren't like farms of agave. It's just walking through a field and there's one. And they take like 15, 20 years to grow. And so to harvest them and to to be patient, know where they are, and you start to taste the typicity just like you would in a grape um, with a different style. So that's um, sort of the the 101 of those. Um, When it comes to in a restaurant, I think mezcal is still very intimidating for for folks. I was just going to say, I don't... I don't think you want to push it on your regular customer. They're so used to a margarita. Right, but then there's ways to use cocktails to introduce it to them. Right. And so we have a great cocktail called Smoke on the Water that's um, uh, made with uh, watermelon juice that's freshly squeezed, and then mezcal. So you get a little bit of the sweetness, but you get the smokiness. Um, We did a uh, uh, Ernesto and Jalisco, which is a take on a Hemingway daiquiri, and we put mezcal in there, or put a... Uh, tequila in there actually not mezcal but it's great with mezcal too Um, but using that as a gateway and then the more our staff knows about it the more comfortable they are to sell it and tell that story and it's like here have a taste of this that's that's the way to do Mm -hmm. it Um, you you came you know we've been talking about it you came from a fine dining background there's definitely been a shift since the 90s from fine dining to casual dining Mm -hmm. And the bingo is you're like in the heart of casual dining. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you did, but is that a trend? I mean, is is that where restaurants are going, or not necessarily? I mean, New York's a hard place to evaluate it, but yeah, it's um, it's an interesting time. Um, when I f- first set out, I said I always want to work. I want to work at the five star hotels, five star restaurants, right. and and understand and that element did. of it. Because I knew that I could always take the essence of that and I could take it to other platforms. Um, whereas it would have been much harder to say, I worked at McDonald's and now I'm going to take this and I'm going to, you know, here, here's what I'm going to do at right. 11 Madison Park. Right. It doesn't quite translate that way. Right. So, um, so with that, uh, I think there's a, people are, our guests now are smarter, uh, they're more wise and more aware of what's going on in the industry and about food, and food is actually a part of our culture now, whereas I remember when I was in college, uh, the way that people were hearing about food was through the Food Network, and I remember my aunts in Corning, New York, they, they were kind of quoting Emerald, like, bam, when they cooked, and they, they knew what the Trinity was because of right. watching his cooking show, and that's how they learned about it, but now... Through social media, as we talked about, through you know celebrity chefs, for good or for bad, um, they're they're more aware, and uh, with that, um, they're looking for that not just on the special occasions, but on 
every night of the week. And whether that's in, okay, I may not go to um, the modern every night, but you know what? I could go to daily provisions every day and I could, or every other day and I could get breakfast or I could get a sandwich. I'm still getting sort of the, uh, the same hospitality. I'm getting the same quality food um, with it. And how do you make it accessible? So I think that's how it's shifted. But I do think New York is a real challenge and it's forced the hand because of the rising costs of labor, of rent, of doing business in, in New York um, that uh, it's hard. And as I, we don't have a restaurant in New York because of that. Um, but as I look in the other market... Do you need to have one other than Ego? Nope. I don't think no. so. As I start to travel more, I'm seeing, you know, New York may be expensive not just to do business in, but if I'm graduating college and saying, okay, um, back in the day, I had to go to New York or San Francisco, let's say, to get that, that big job. Now, there's so many others. I could go back to Nashville. I could go to Charleston. I could go to Atlanta. I could Asheville. Go to Asheville. Exactly. You know. So there's all these places. And with that, those young folks, they're demanding um, more focus on what people eat. And so going to Asheville and you walk down the main street in Asheville, the restaurants that are there and the quality is like, wow, pound for pound. This is the featherweight champion when you look at places like Nashville, Asheville, Charleston. Um, and right. it's pretty exciting to see the opportunity that's out there. Right. Um, when you were talking about it, describing it, you know, where people want a certain experience or story or connection and food isn't just food anymore. It's just, is that millennials or not necessarily? I don't think it's just millennials. I think it's the evolving taste that we all have. Right. That's, that's it's a the trend, time. not a age group yeah. or whatever. And maybe there's a large age group that's more, uh, more influential in the market. That's more vocal through social media. And so that's, what's helping propel it at a faster right. rate than the past. Um, but I think it's just, it's an exciting time, um, to, to be a part of that. All right. So where do you want to take bar taco? What's, what's your marching orders, expansion, quality change? I think it's a, a little bit of both. It's, um, the exciting thing for me is how we scale culture and quality and hospitality. Um, and culture, which you talked about, mm -hmm. you just brought your people, mm -hmm. quality, yep. ingredients, fresh lime juice, yeah. squeeze hospitality, yeah, and, something and, you're great at. And it's not just, okay, we're going to airdrop in a restaurant and it's a cookie cutter restaurant. How does it actually um, relate to the community around it? How do we put down those roots? Um, and how do we uh, build those connections and, and introduce people to, to new flavors, build that trust uh, along the way? So I think it's continuing to grow it. Um, for me, one of the, the most enjoyable and aspects of it and the challenges is how you grow great people from within um, as we grow. Because that's the, the, the mother yeast, if you will. And right. so how do we feed that and show those That's people that have been... That's the starter that keeps yeah. going. Exactly. Especially yeah. as you go into cities that you don't have a presence in before. It's so important. Yeah. All right. I can't let you out of here and talking about Bar Taco mm -hmm. without making you tell me what wines pair best with tacos. Okay? Um, and I'll make it simple for you. Okay. So let's pick... A carne asada, which is what steak, yeah, and an al pastor, which is a pork. Great. So, give me a wine that you're eating tacos at a restaurant or making them at home. You're making steak, beef. Give me a good wine with that. Uh, margarita, not Santa Margarita, but just a margarita. Margarita. No. <laughs> okay, that's the international. That's the you're not listening those, yes. to me. <laughs> so, what wine to go with um, al pastor and uh, carne asada? Uh, again, I'll go back to those wines that aren't high in tannins that are just very uh, forward and, 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 and bright and, uh, and approachable. So I think something um, like a 
Gamay. Like so Beaujolais. Beaujolais. Gamay is a yeah, great, yeah, great with that yeah. stuff. And I think also for both. Yeah, I think both of them um, because you have anytime you have spice, you want fruit. You don't want oak. You don't want um, alcohol because that just accentuates that spiciness and throws it out of it's balance. It's even more about not the meat, but how it's spiced. Exactly. You need, you need to pair it to yeah. that. So give me one more. One more. I um, love I love Gamay and Beaujolais. Yeah. That's a great play. Uh, as we were talking before, I think um, in Sicily, there's a wine called Cerasuolo di Vittoria. Let's spell it. C-E-R-E-S-U-O-L-O. Yeah, I was told there'd be no spelling questions. Well, I don't know who told you that. But I... I, I forgot to yeah. tell everyone. I'm going to post Sabado's yeah. um, wine list. There's a great and, av- affordable one, uh, Valle de Acate. V-A-L-E space G-E. Cher- a Cherisola. We'll definitely post space that. Space A-C-A-T-E. Yeah. So there's the perfect play. Yeah. You got tacos, which is Chill a great... Chill it down, though. Chill it down. Right. You got tacos. Great meal. You got a wine that's reasonable, that's delicious, an interesting grape, and it's just a great mm-hmm. thing. Don't drink at room temperature. All right. Sabado, we got to move along to our wine list. We ask our guests every week to answer these five questions. Um, don't dwell on them. Don't be a deer in the headlights. You should be very uh, capable of uh, answering all of these. All right? So the first question is, and we talked a little about it before, but tighten it up a little. What are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What's on the table? Maybe for work, mm-hmm. you know, seasonal. Yeah. So in the in the fridge right now, um, I drink uh, a lot of uh, for white wines, um, a lot of Chablis, uh, a lot of Bourgogne Blanc. So on Chablis, you got a fave? Uh, Tribu, uh, T R B U T, Tribu. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, Excuse me. Um, so village level Chablis, uh, and then also uh, Bourgogne Blanc. So the one that we're going to taste here, uh, just trying different producers um, and looking for great producers and great values at their entry level. Um, so Bourgogne Blanc is Burgundy. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the village level, you know, the cheaper Correct. stuff. Could come all from that. all over. Could be right. blended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Smaller makers, great mm-hmm. makers. Younger and all vine. Of that yeah, stuff. exactly. It's a good way to get into Burgundy mm-hmm. on the yeah. white side. Um, anything else? Uh, in terms of the reds, a lot of Barbera uh, also that I'm uh, drinking those. Um, and some, you know, Sangiovese as we were talking about right. earlier. So that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, next question. It's the silliest, but this is a good one for you because you love to cook. I mm-hmm. know that. I do love to cook. Um, you're not afraid to stay home and knock out. I travel a lot and I eat out But a when lot. you're home. So what is your favorite, your favorite mm-hmm. wine and food pairing? Now, it's not necessarily something you eat every week yeah. or every month, but what, what, and not, don't tell me what the best wine and food pairing is. Tell me what you think is always. Mm-hmm. Does champagne and sunsets count? That's good, but I won't accept that as the answer. Damn it. <laughs> champagne and anything. Yeah, exactly. You're not allowed to say oysters on this show. No, no. Um, uh, but so- keep. I mean, you cook everything. Yeah. What? What? When you make something that you like, what's mm-hmm. the wine that's like? Oh man. Well, that's, that's for me. It's like if I'm. I like to. I I live near the uh, the green market, and so being able seasonal. to walk through there and get inspired, and you see the seasonal ingredients, and then um, if I'm putting the my my heart and soul into a dish, I also like to do the same when it comes to the wine on it. So I'm drinking a lot of you know cooking a lot of seafood right now. 
um, and a lot of vegetables. And so that's where I am going into those premier crew burgundies. Okay. And especially, so right now it's corn season, let's say. So whether that's, um, you know, I did some uh, flounder uh, last week, did some uh, halibut and just the, the corn. So that, halibut, flounder, very delicate, white, flaky mm-hmm. fish. Yeah. And then you have great... So Chablis, great with that? And you have the <coughs> mushrooms and the sweet corn. So that's when I'm going to like Merceau. That's when I'm going to... Little richer. Exactly. So the, those fatter, richer okay. style whites with those. Mm-hmm. I kind of know how you answered that. Yeah. I'll decipher <laughs> for everyone. Do you have a favorite wine restaurant or bar? Is there a place where you know they're doing it well? You like the people, you like oh, the yeah. list, you like the vibe? You know, and I always worry about people thinking, well, if I leave this guy out. But there are yeah. a handful of people that are yeah. hitting it. Um, so in New York, um, Charlie Bird is still kind of a go-to for me. Um, because one thing I love is every bottle is available by the half bottle. Mm. And sometimes you don't just want, if I'm dining by myself at the bar, I don't just want a glass of wine. And I say, wow, this is an awesome bottle. Good value, but I can't drink a whole bottle. So they'll pop it for half the price. And so that's a great way to ex- explore and experiment. Um, great people there as well. Good um, one. Very popular yeah. answer on this yeah. show for uh, a good reason. Um, I think uh, <coughs> Joey's doing an awesome job over at uh, Fausto. Fausto. Yeah. And um, he just opened a wine bar. That's right. Yeah. You know, so he's going to go have dinner there tonight. On wa- yeah. La Lu. Yeah, I haven't been there yet. So yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, there's a anything cool, else? Uh, there's a really cool place in, um, in L.A. called Esther's Wine Bar. And uh, same folks that did Rustic Canyon, and it's a small... Where in L.A.? Is it like a downtown oh, thing? Or no, it's not a downtown of... thing. I won't say it's like Santa monica okay. Don't quote me. I'm not I'll, good with I'll look it up. Yeah. But, but Esther's... Esther's Wine Bar. And okay. uh, you walk in there, and you can grab a bottle off the wall. You can take it with you. You can pop it at the table, and it's just... Uh, just a great environment yeah, a great and environment selection. And That's great what I'm yeah. looking for. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the reason we ask people like you is if you're in L.A. and you walk into Esther's, you go, wow, this guy... Yeah. This is a good spot yeah. and all of that. Um, all right. Before we exit that question, did we cover it? Is there anything else? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, there's so many great places to drink wine this day and age. I think we're very fortunate yeah. in that sense. Um, but but yeah. thanks for you know yeah. bringing those out. All right. If you can't answer this, no one can. Oh, shoot. No and pressure. And the question is, what's your favorite all-time wine? Now, let me give you a little context. When I put the question together... Initially, almost three years ago, it was always like, well, this guy's going to tell me the most expensive rare wine. That's some of the answer, but it became very sort of experiential, story-based. You know, a guy got engaged with the champagne, and that means everything. In the context of any of that, what's a wine to you that you just remember and resonates? So there's two, and we're going to go high-low. Okay. So the... um, the one that just talked about the experience, um, my sister was studying in South Africa in, in Cape Town, treated my, flew my dad over there for his birthday. I think it was his 60th birthday, 65th birthday. And, uh, we went to the top of Table Mountain and went to the wine shop, got a cheap bottle of Graham Beck Rosé. And there we were sitting atop Table Mountain, watching the sunset right there. And I was like, the people you're with, the setting, and you had wine so in your glass. That I get, but is the Grand Beck decent too? It's yeah, it's decent. It's a okay. It's a quaffable like. Okay. Yeah. So it's really see that's 
that's sort of the real answer. Yeah. It's really about you know what wine yeah. does to people. Yeah. Now, give me the other answer. The other one, um, memorable bottle. And this was sort of one of those aha moments. Um, when I was the wine director at the Greenbrier, I came into my office one day, and there was a bottle that somebody had sent back that was on my desk with the cork in it and said sent back. And I turned it around, um, and it was 1961 Chateau Latour. Um, which uh, legendary bottle, and it was the last bottle in the cellar. And it was uh, a regular that uh, his wife had, it was their anniversary, their wedding anniversary. His wife, Tasa, said, I don't want to drink this night. This doesn't taste good. And I popped it, and I was like, this is flawless. It was awesome. It was awesome. So that night, um, I had some, some uh, vendors come in that day, I'd blind taste them, and they had no idea what it was. That night, um, invited a friend over, sat on my back porch in West Virginia under the stars, and we drank 61 Latour, uh, and that was just one of those, first time I'd had a wine probably of that, of that pedigree. That's that a legendary had. vintage, yeah. right? The yeah. Petrus and yeah. all the great wines yeah. and all of that. All right, good one. All right, last question. Uh, think about this. Best wine around 15, 20 bucks retail. Uh, the story, any of my listeners will tell you, I have kids in their 20s and they're going to a dinner party, or they're bringing a gift, and they ain't bringing an $8, $12, but they can't afford a 40 So what's cool for 15 20 Give me a red, give me a white. Now you can go region, grape, specifics, like Muscadet. Mm-hmm. We both know that's yeah, a great value. Yeah, yeah. Cheap. So what do you say to that? Give me a red and a white. All right. So uh, for white wine. Hey, you're a little stumped here. Yeah, I mean, Look put me in the hot guy. seat here. Yeah. Master Sommelier yeah. worked at every great place. He's sitting here <laughs> cowering. I'm going to have to end the show now. Go um, ahead. Come so, on. Okay, so in terms of, um, let's start with red wines. Um, this Red's is, usually the hardest, but go. Yeah, uh, I still think um, from, you know, we've talked about a couple of them, and I would say, uh, let's say um, in Italy, um, you know, I just picked some up the other day, um, Bertolotto, an amazing uh, Barolo producer, okay. uh, makes a, um, a Barbera that I think is uh, pretty reasonably priced down in there. That, down yeah. in that range. Um, nice choice. Yeah, I think also um, uh, this day and age, you could, might be touch more on that, that side, but you looking to Beaujolais, um, and you can find some great producers that produce both a crew-level Beaujolais, and the but then also level. the village level. Yeah. And that's where I think the best values can be had. And it was funny. My, my, I agree. My girlfriend was saying, I was traveling. She's like, I want to drink a bottle of wine. Can I drink something at home? I was like, no, you can't. Um, why don't you go to the wine shop? And she, I, she said, well, what should I tell her I like? Him I like? And I said, well, walk into the wine shop. And, and, and the, when the person asks, say, I'm looking for a Grand Cru wine, a, a village-level wine that drinks like a Grand Cru wine. The guy says, yeah, don't we all? Um, and, but sure enough. He better have something. He introduced her to uh, the Moray Nadeau Chablis, which is a, a great Chablis from a great producer, one that we drink in, at home before. Great. Exactly. So um, it's trusting, you know, being able to articulate what you're looking for and finding those great producers, but what's the entry-level wine they have? And I, I, those are my everyday drinking wines as well. So regardless of what the region is, whether it's in I agree. Burgundy, Bordeaux, California, etc. So Nadeau the Chablis, mm-hmm. that's the white? That's, that's the white, yeah. Okay. All right. Pretty good job. You know, had you stumped for a second, but that's okay. Never would have Up on fig- the ropes, up on the ropes. Never would have figured it would have been you, but that's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. That, those are all good ones. And like I said, we'll post everything. You know, Sabado is a guy that you want to listen to. He's 
been around and tasted enough stuff. So when he's dishing out some recos, you want to check him out. <laughs> um, all right. We got about five minutes, which okay. is enough. Um, every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip. Uh, this week, uh, Sabado was kind enough. I asked him if he'd bring in a wine. I always ask for accessible, reasonable, and cool, you know, so that you could go out and buy it too. Um, he brought in a 2017 Gibelot Bourguignon Chardonnay. Um, it's from the Cote d'Or in France. It's from the Auxay Dures region. Um, tell me a little more. What can you tell me that you know? I know you're trying this for the first yeah. time, which to me is very fun. Yeah, so because I'm not around wine on a day-to-day basis, I uh, just like a guest in a restaurant should use the sommeliers to find something um, that they like on the list and customize it. I use wine shops in the same way. So there's probably three or four wine shops that I buy from on a regular basis. And so you're in New York. Yep. I know you got this at Flatiron. Yep. That's obviously one. Yep. Give me the other two that you uh, like. buy from Morel every once in a while, from Verve. Um, those are some, and then I also have some other. So Jeff Taylor's yep. now at yep. Morel and Dustin yep. owns. And guests over and over say go into a wine yeah. store and create a relationship with the people there, especially stores like yeah. that. Tell them what you like. Yeah. And so that's this is how this came across. And so when things come across their table that they've tasted or are seeing that I might like, they say, hey, you're interested in some of this. And so this is one that I hadn't had before. Um, and I uh, said, hey, we got a couple cases of this, um, something you're interested in, think you like the style. And I said, yeah, send me two bottles and uh, we'll pop it and uh, see if I like it. And if so, I'll go back for more. So uh, I don't know much about this producer. I know that um, this is, uh, the vineyards are in Merceau. The, vin- the winery's in Oxydress, which is just north of Merceau. So not a bad neighborhood right. to, be, to be around. Um, and it's uh, bottled straight from the cask, unfiltered, um, unfine. Uh, All right, let's evaluate it. Yeah. So let's go with color first. Mm-hmm. It's got that light pale. You know, it's got some color mm-hmm. to it. There's a little bit of gold on it. A um, little bit of gold, a little shimmer there. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go nose. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm leaning on you. What are you getting on the nose? Yeah. So, is it typical? Well, let's talk about what it is first, then we can talk about tapicia. But I think I'm getting more of the fruits. Is it, you know, if I'm thinking Chablis, it's more of the tart, bright fruits, like the green apple, pears. This is more of those baked, like a yellow apple and baked fruits that are coming through on there. Um, that, that tells me there's a little more, it tastes, tastes almost developed, a little bit, so, like more age than a 17 would expect. Right. All right. Mouthfeel, pretty rich in the mouth, right? Medium, medium plus. I yeah, mean, we're definitely full bodied for, for, for uh, a for white. Sure. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. for a, so the mouthfeel's hitting it out mm-hmm. of the park. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go palate and mm-hmm. tell me if the palate reflects the nose descriptors that yeah. you did. So, you know, we popped this about 45 minutes ago mm-hmm. in. Uh, at first, I said, oh, well, this is a little flabby, but it's actually come around, and I agree. the acidity has popped up, and now I'm almost salivating with it. So when you have that richness, wanting some of that acid to balance it out, it's that yin and yang that you look for. And the acid came around, yeah. right? So there's a pretty good example. Yeah. I mean, I said to you, listen, you brought the wine in. Let's open and yeah. drink it during the show. Let's not pop it, you yeah. know, the last 10 minutes. And both of us drank it and it's like okay but nothing great yeah. but it's evolved into a yeah. wine that you like yes this is punching over its weight class in my mind so that's a good yeah. wine yeah you know yeah. this is something you would buy again and mm-hmm. if you were making that fluke and yeah. the corn and all that yeah. you wouldn't you'd feel good about putting a bunch of bottles Ab- absolutely this is um 
I like wines that are in that more reductive style. This has that, that little popcorn characteristic. But it's not overly. Re- it was a little more at the yeah. beginning. I didn't know where it was when going. When you give it now, to air, it, it opens yeah. up. And this is one that also at home, I'd probably decant. I decant a lot of white wines and red yeah. wines at home. Um, All right, so what's, give me um, classic pairings with this. What we said, the fish. I think the, the fish work well with that. I think you can do um, uh, some chicken dishes as well uh, that have have some of that. I just think it goes well with vegetables, um, but corn is kind of what's on my mind right now. Scallops would be awesome with this as well. You like to make scallops. I do. Um, is corn almost like asparagus that's hard to pair with or not really? I think it's pretty easy because it it's is. sweet, it's, but it's not too sweet. Right. And it's creamy and it, it's... it's uh, And also know. how you prepare it. You have yeah. to match it yeah, to Exactly, that. yeah. All right. Um, so that is the 2017 Giboulot, G-I-B-O-U-L-O-T, Bourguignon Chardonnay. Um, what are we talking about? About 40 bucks? 40 mid? I think I paid 35 37 for Okay, this. Yeah. so even better. Under 40 mm-hmm. Um Drinks better than its price. Yeah. We like this wine, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. I'll post everything. All right, Sabado, we got to wrap up. Uh, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Um, subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Uh, follow us on Facebook. We're at the Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby, but the hashtag, the Grape Nation. Uh, same thing on Twitter, but at Ben Ruby, not S Ben Ruby, and hashtag the Great Nation. Um, like I said earlier, we'll post Sabado's wine list, so all the stuff that he talked about, I will give you the specifics, um, so you could go out and look for some of that stuff. Um, I'll also post the weekly wine sip, which uh, the nice job Sabado did was that it's accessible. And it's a wine that's reasonably priced, and you got you can go out and buy. All right, Sabado, if we want to find you and Bar Taco on social media, where do we go? You go to social media first, and then okay. S- Let's Sab- I'm Sabato. Go to your iPhone. I'm Sabato three. I'm the third actually, and I'm the third Sabato on, from my lineage. So Sabato three was not taken, so I pounced on it, um, and then uh, at bartacolife.com or at bartacolife. Sorry. Right. The, mm-hmm. There are sites for each of the locations, but the corporate one is Bar, Bar Taco, Taco Life, Life yeah. and all of mm-hmm. that. So I think you're going to be hearing more about Bar Taco. Um, you know, go to Bar Taco Life, look at the menu, look at the drinks list and all of that stuff. And Come bef- visit us. Before you know it, there'll be one in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But if there is one, there's one in Stanford, Westport, Port Chester, yeah. like you said. Um, anything on Long Island? Uh, not yet, but that's, I think a, that's a, it's, right it's on the horizon for you and yeah. all of that. All right, I want to thank our guest Sabado Sagaria. Um, thanks for coming in. I've been meaning to have you in for a while. Thank you again to our, as always, our engineer Amanda and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.